listeners to the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and today I'm honored to have as my guest my good friend and the former athletic director of the University of Kansas, along with many other places that we'll get into here in a minute, Mr. Lou Perkins. Lou, thanks for joining us on the show. Well, you know, Scott, when you ask me, um, I kind of look back, you know, since I retired, I've not done anything like this. Uh, any interviews have turned down, you know, some major places, but because of our relationship, personal relationship, and what I think what you stand for and the, the ability for you to do the work that you're doing, and, you know, I've never heard anybody in like seven to ten years say anything negative about you, so that tells me a lot about you. Well, kind kind of you to say. I appreciate that a lot, and it's uh, the podcast is a good time. We've been excited to have you on You've it. done a great job. Well, we're going to, listeners, what we're going to do, Lou's got a, a background. Uh, the resume is, is pretty awesome and pretty diverse, uh, and we're going to go through all of that, but as we always do on this podcast, we're going to start all the way back in the beginning. Uh, tell our listeners where you grew up. Well, you know, I, I came from the East Coast. I was born and raised in a, a relatively small East Coast town. Uh, it was called Chelsea, Massachusetts, and it was right across the river. There was a river, the Mystic River, right across the river to Boston. So I, I we would take the MTA, cost us 15 cents. Of course, they were always trying to make me pay more because they thought I was an adult, not a, a teenager. <laughs> so I'd have to carry my birth certificate with me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we could get in to see the Celtics, the Red Sox. You know, it was great. But the place itself was not very good. Yeah, you know, it was just a tough place to live. You've told me you grew up pretty, pretty modest upbringing. Yes, very much so. Yeah, one of the most interesting, I think, from the times you and I have talked about your childhood over the years. Still, one of the most fascinating things to me. Uh, you grew up virtually in the same neighborhood <laughs> as Whitey Bulger. Well, you know. Yeah, technically, <laughs> they tell all my friends tell me not to say anything. Right, about I was just going to say, is it safe so to talk I, about? Yeah, I, I really am careful <laughs> about that. But uh, I never had met him. Uh-huh. I knew who he was. I knew a little bit about him. Uh, but I made real. I made myself be very disciplined and to stay away from anything in any place he lived or worked or whatever. Yeah. But I did work for his brother. I was just going to say, I've got yeah. a note later on in the podcast when we hit your professional uh, career. For listeners, uh, what would be the fancy word for that? We're foreshadowing yeah. uh, what topic we'll hit later. This is pretty crazy, really. Uh, but I think I just think that's wild, knowing that you, you know, grew up in the same network. As, but, you know, as I, 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 I'm sure I told you about the story. I grew up, you know, with a bunch of guys that, you know, they they drank, mm-hmm. and I I never drank, but what I did was I they let me hang out. They were older guys. They let me hang out with them because I would open the beer bottles <laughs> with my teeth. <laughs> That's why my teeth aren't as good as they should be. So I, that was the way I could hang out with the big guys, and they would go to a certain place right along the Mystic River. That was the the river that divided Boston and Chelsea. Mm-hmm. And um, we, there was a little area. I mean, you couldn't swim in it. You couldn't do anything. I mean, it was just nasty. But the guys chose this little area that we, they would go once or twice a week. I'd go with them, open up the beer bottles, and they would sit there and drink, and then they would throw the bottles into the river. Well, all of a sudden, they did the uh, Black Mass story. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all of us, you know, we all said to each other, we called each other and said, let's watch it and make sure we all watch it together, even though we're far away. So I'm watching it with my wife, and next thing I know, they're throwing bodies, dead bodies, into the river where exactly where I was <laughs> popping beer bottles. <laughs> and my phone lit up that day, and I mean, and that didn't stop the whole day. Do you realize how close we were to being thrown in the river? You know, yeah. stuff like that. I said, I don't want to know what they I'm, I'm out of there. That's funny. Yeah. So for our listeners, if you don't know who Whitey Bulger is or haven't seen Black Mass, go check it out. It's a, it's an unsettling story. Well, you know, you're able to escape the, the mob, obviously. Um, for our listeners, we'll get into this a little more too. But, you know, you were a fan of sports as a kid and everything, uh, a lot of sports, and you ended up being involved in a lot of sports professionally. But as a kid, it was basketball that really – captured you and that you excelled at the most um you know what was your introduction to basketball how old were you when you started playing was the addiction instant you know you know i i came from you know a part of new england that sports was very prevalent you know and because of the celtics and the again the red sox and the bruins and then early on the patriots um so you know they were always there so you couldn't help but to know that there was some kind of sport out there that you could participate in. Well, I was very fortunate. I didn't stop playing until I was in the seventh grade. I think I was 13 or 14 years old. And there was a coach that had this junior high inter-squad teams. They called them, uh, uh, was it, Golden Black. And, he, you know, because I was a big kid, he asked me to come out. I had never held the basketball in my hand until then. And uh, I it just I fell in love with it, and it just was best thing that ever happened to me outside of my wife. And uh, you know, I just I'm so thankful that he took an interest in me and allowed me to be part of his family and a part of about being a part of the basketball family. Yeah, and kind of an interesting story for our listeners. Something that's commonplace now, but was almost unheard of when you were a kid. Because you were so talented at basketball, your coaches actually asked you not to do the other sports for fear of injury, um, yeah. which is not as uncommon today. But 50 years ago, that was that was a new thing. Well, you know, again, just lucky that I turned out to have some skills that I didn't know, and they recognized that, and they saw it down in the future. They had a vision that was gonna, what was going to happen to me. And uh, the school was very – it was a big school – but athletically, it was a close-knit group, and they just went to all my coaches, all the other coaches in football and, you know, track or field, and they just said, hey, you know, we see a great future for this kid. We don't want to take any chances on him getting hurt, and they all agreed, and, yeah. you know, that's that was it. Even though I hated the coaches for doing that right. because I wanted to play some other sports, but I got involved later on, you know, my senior year in track or field. That was the other sport I liked a lot. Well, you came out of high school, depending on the ranking, anywhere between one and five in the nation, top recruits out of that. A lot of offers from a lot of famous coaches, but wound up chosen the University of Iowa. Tell us us what pulled your heart to Iowa. Well, uh, I knew early on in my basketball career that I had to get out of that environment that I was in. Because I saw too many good athletes, you know, hang around 
and then they ended up on the street selling drugs or taking drugs, and I didn't want any part of that. Um, to this day, I, you know, outside of being, when I was sick, I took some medicine, but I never have gotten involved in drugs. I don't drink, you know, not because of, you know, against it, I just don't like the taste of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, But part of the reason was just distance, just it was getting that miles trend. between you and that. I had to get out of there. I yeah. knew I had to get out of there. And um, I did. And it was, and I could have gone to, like you said, a lot of schools and, and you know, you mentioned schools and people could, oh, you could have gone there, you could have gone there. You have to, you know, as I, even now I tell kids, you have to go where you're most comfortable with. Yeah. And I was lucky I had a biology teacher, of all things, who was teaching at my high school. And he went to Iowa, and he had sent two football players there already. Mm-hmm. So that I knew when I went there, there would be a couple of kids I would know. And it was the best decision I ever made. Well, talking about different parts of the country, one of the most compelling stories over the years as you and I have talked about this is you know I think most of us tend to think about civil rights in America progressing sort of in a linear fashion you know it it got you know it was bad got better here whatever but what I think a lot of people lose sight of including me is where in the progression you were depended a lot on or on where you were geographically right. you grew up in a very diverse background uh but when you went to iowa you know saw some pretty awful things um what was that culture shock like well, it it really took me by surprise because you know i was so naive i thought everybody was like me grew up in an environment that nobody really worried about those kind of things mm-hmm. and it wasn't you know we didn't see a lot of it in the news at that time it was the beginning of the Vietnam War, uh, but Iowa is a fairly liberal school, and they had all kinds of marches on the main street, and I mean, there was all kinds of things going on, and people putting blood on the roads, and, and you know, I would go up there and then turn around and walk right away, because I, you know, I couldn't deal with that. Yeah. Um, but I saw it firsthand, I grew up with it firsthand, and sometimes I, I, I regress back to all those experiences, that I had, I just happened to be born at the, a certain time that a lot of the stuff was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, a, a great, great thing that happened, and I really still believe it was great and, and would do it again. When I got to Iowa in the summer of 63, um, I went to summer school because I knew, uh, I figured out that you'd have to go every summer to graduate in four years. And they weren't paying for 50 year scholarships at the time. And my family didn't have enough money to pay for me to go to summer school or anything. But they would pay for summer school if while you were, you know, playing basketball. So I went early, took a bunch of classes. But when I got to, uh, we flew into Cedar Rapids, and the coach picked me up. And he was driving back, and I could tell he wanted to ask me something, tell me something. And he said, Lou, uh, would you have any problem living with a, I forget what they called it, but it wasn't African American because that wasn't a word that they used. Right. But we have a player who's you know six ten, uh, a bright kid, but he wants to go to summer school, and uh, you like him. But right now we have nobody for him to stay with. Didn't say that anybody wouldn't stay with him, but said that they don't have anybody. I said, "What are you talking about? Yeah, put her, send him on down." Well, he turned out to be not only a great friend and he still is a great friend but he turned out to be a great basketball player he played in the aba 
uh, played, I think, like 10, 12 years. And while he was doing that, he went to dental school and became an oral surgeon. He's now working at, uh, I think it's UCLA. I'll be darned. Yeah. So he was special. Yeah. But and also Scott, if I may, yeah, sure. He introduced me to Motown. I was going to be my next. <laughs> that was going to be my absolute next comment. Was and we'll not get into this too much because I'm going to bring it up again later towards the end of the podcast. But that's one of the happy things from your experience uh, in college. I know is when you fell in love with Motown oh, music, which is a time. total shared passion yeah. for you and I. Well, that's the upside of it. Um, but it is interesting, and you've been pretty judicious about what you said on the podcast but i know from past conversations um pretty rough culture shock in some ways and i was really resentful to the people who were doing it saying things about him or and even about me yeah and sometimes about the coach i just first i couldn't understand then you know because i had never experienced it but then i started to understand and just frosted me even more yeah so uh and you know when you think about not only what a great player and individually, you know, intellectually bright and all that stuff, but just a great person. Yeah. So. Well, we're going to move on to your professional career here, and if you'll humor me for a minute, we'll okay. come back and talk individually about some of these things, but I'm just going to read the full resume each stop. <laughs> it's pretty impressive, and then we'll come back and we'll pick apart a few of them. Uh, and one of the things that I think is cool, I suppose most careers are like this. You start off with a job that's not all that glamorous before you uh, <clears throat> move on to those that are. But it's pretty, pretty awesome how you know how it changed from your first jobs and the gritty you know that there are. So first, he went to Northtown. Lou went to Northtown State Hospital and worked in the maximum security ward. Then went on to graduate school, South Carolina, got a master's in education's, uh, education with emphasis as a guidance counselor. Went to University of South Carolina at Aiken, became the athletic director and coach of the basketball and tennis team. Uh, while you were there, they moved up from NAIA uh, to Division Two, I think. Um, went on to be the senior associate athletic director at the University of Penn, right-hand man to the AD. Then you became the athletic director at Wichita State, right here in good old Kansas. Uh, Then you went on to be the AD at the University of Maryland. Uh, Then the AD at the University of Connecticut, which is probably where a lot of our listeners, you know, probably pick up the connection with you. And then ended your career here as the athletic director at the University of Kansas. That is a a pretty impressive and accomplished resume. Thank you. A lot of blue chip Uh, stops. Very lucky. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, let's start with the state hospital. You've told me <laughs> a lot of stories uh, about what you had to do there, uh, and I'll leave it to your judgment which ones you want to share with the listeners. But like a lot of other things, uh, pretty impactful to you and what you saw, and again, I don't know, civil rights, but kind of a human rights perspective, worked with a lot of folks that had uh, mental illness and and saw the way treatment was at the time, you know, share anything you want to about okay. your time there. Well, most people, they still don't believe it, but my undergraduate degree is in psychology with a minor in recreation, okay, only because I didn't know what else to do. I tried law, pre-med, I tried them all. Ah, I thought I would be better off in psychology, mm-hmm. which was a good decision. I had a great 
mentor, faculty member, who was from the Pennsylvania area, and he knew everybody in Pennsylvania. So when I graduated, I didn't know where to go to look for a job. And he arranged for me to go to Norristown, but he forgot to tell me what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> Conveniently left that, <laughs> left that part out. Yeah, and uh, you know, we, all the school books you read and stuff doesn't say anything about what actually goes on. So it, naturally, because of my size, the first thing they do is put me in maximum security. Like I know what the hell I was doing in maximum security. <laughs> all right, and... One thing I did learn is there were, at that time, and you got to remember, they don't have these these hospitals anymore. They did, they were so bad all over the country that uh, there were plenty of patients, so called, that had no illness, and their families conveniently put them into a state mental hospital because they didn't want to deal with them, and that just killed me to see these people. It killed me to see all of them, but yeah. you know. I have a little more passion than most people think I do. Um, so I did some things that probably got me in a lot of trouble. Well, at <laughs> least if you would, the listeners, at least tell us the habits you started with the with the games. And, well, because I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that was I, that's what got me in trouble. I think. <laughs> you know, I just said to Gwen, we were newly married. I said, "Honey, we might not be here very long, but at least I'm going to feel better about what I'm doing." And so what I would do is part of my rec- recreation side of my job, I would take small groups of people to Philadelphia and we'd go to you know a basketball game or we'd go to a baseball game, where, whatever that we could get tickets for. And then I usually have four or five of them. And usually I handpicked the ones I wanted. And the reason why is I, because what I knew what I was going to do, and that was I was going to give them my own personal money all right, and we're going to get to a certain point in the game, and I would just say, "Go." Just I don't want to see you anymore. Just get out of here. Here's a little money to get you through. After that, I can't help you. And you know, I I thought this out pretty, pretty straightforward, and probably some of it wasn't the right decision. But I, I didn't know what else to do. You felt like a lot of those folks just had no business being at that. Oh, hospital. that and the way they were treated. The I mean, it was just disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it was. I, I prefer not to go into that, yeah. but just let your imagination, tr- you know, go. Especially in maximum security, because they, they figured nobody would ever say anything. And I, you know, there were times where I would just walk into a meeting and then walk right out again because I couldn't. You know, I, I said what I had to say, and I, I think for the people who know me, I don't hesitate about saying what I believe. So I, I did that, but I would give these patients some money, you know, just to kind of get them through. And then there was one of three things that could happen to them. And obviously the first one is not a good one. They could die, mm-hmm. but they were going to die in the hospital. So I had to kind of weigh that that way. Then I felt like the second worst thing could happen is they get picked up by the police and they bring them back to the hospital. And the third thing is they can make it. They find they go someplace. They meet somebody or a family member, whatever, and they're out of that place and never have to go back. So those are the three things that I had to weigh, and I had to make sure when I weighed them, I weighed them per patient so that I didn't put somebody in there that could not survive in one of those things. Yeah. So, But I, I lasted it a year. Yeah. They told me, hey, you can't do that. I said, you're right. I shouldn't be doing that. Next event, we'd go out. I'd do the same thing again. Yeah. And... 
you know, I just, they finally, they just said, you know, either stop or you're going to have to leave. I said goodbye. Yeah. That's what we went to graduate school. I was just going to say, then went on, got your master's in South Carolina. Uh, let's make a pit stop, at least for a little bit. University of South Carolina at Aiken. So your first athletic director job, and I know athletic director, if the audience could see me, I'm using air quotes because you were the athletic director, but also, you know, coach of several teams and, and also the bus driver and, and everything else, you know, the classic small school experience. Um, but, you know, you've told me a lot of times that that was the job, that was the real learning field where you learned everything because you had to do the scheduling you had to take care of uniforms you had to to do everything that that really was the kind of the launching pad for all of it well two things they never had any sports there before athletics so when they hired me there was nothing literally nothing and uh, but my main job was supposed to be basketball which they didn't have a team and then you know i became the tennis coach because i wanted i thought we had to have tennis because south carolina where we were it was a big tennis community and then a big golf community and then um they also asked me to become assistant dean of students which i actually enjoyed but it was a lot of work but if it wasn't for my wife gwen and for those who know her they'll understand but you know we had no washers and dryers and i wouldn't let those players play in the same clothes they played in the day before and we didn't have enough money to buy two sets we only had money to buy one so i come home at night late at night because we had to use the local high school gym after everybody else played practice and i wouldn't get home till about 11 o'clock but knowing that we had to go again the next day she would wash all the uniforms in the house and uh, she was great about it and the kids loved her and we didn't have any dorms at the time either so a lot of those kids, because we recruited outside of Aiken, you know, not too far, but we, they, they needed a place to live. And at that time, we could have them live in our house. So they were sleeping on, you know, sleeping bags in our house, you know, wherever they could find a place. Yeah. You know, we fed them and all that, but those are the best kids I have ate. We've been around. Right? That's awesome. And so I've you just around. brought, I mean, didn't have another place to stay, so you brought that. If you don't have a place to stay, crashed you, your place. you come to my place. Uh, it's not hard for me to envision a young Gwen taking care of oh, all those kids and doing their laundry and everything else. She is great. Yeah. And it's amazing, Scott. You know, well, first of all, most of the players weren't very good. <laughs> <laughs> and I got I got there, and I said, well, where do I recruit? They said, we don't know. <laughs> well, so I didn't know. And uh, I ended up going to, like, CYOs, church leagues, mm -hmm. you know, high school kids would not, didn't want anything to do with us. <laughs> They'd rather walk on someplace else than come to us. And these kids, then when they said to me the first year, they said, you know, Coach Perkins, we'll be glad to play, but you have to know during hunting season, we don't play. <laughs> and we don't practice. I said, what? <laughs> what do you mean you made a commitment to me? No, we, we've hunted all lives and we're going hunt <laughs> so that i had to concede probably we'll get to it later but that's probably a little different experience than you had at yukon oh guess. yeah yeah well one of the other things that i think is cool there one more note about your time at south carolina aiken before we move on you were if i've got my facts right you were the first coach in the history of south carolina college basketball to integrate your team yes. to recruit african-american players yes. you know a lot of the Bigger schools will tell you they were, they really weren't. We, we didn't make a big fuss out of it, mm -hmm. but we had the opportunity. I had the opportunity, and he just passed away just recently, and it hurt me badly. But 
there was a, a, a gentleman named Bob Grant, and he was the principal at the black high school, and he was also the head basketball coach at the high school. And when he when they were integrating, they said he could be he'll either be principal or the head basketball coach. And when he got, and when they made the switch, he didn't get either one. He was assistant basketball coach and assistant principal. So I sat down. You know, I was 24, 25 years old, and I said, "Okay, let's. How do we make this good for us, for our kids?" So I went and met with Bob. I knew him, and I said, "Would you be willing to be my assistant coach?" And by the way, the first year we won't have any money to pay you. He said, okay. <laughs> but what I did know, because of his, and he won big there as a basketball coach, that everybody in the state knew him. And he was such a gentleman. So he got us into places that nobody else could get into. And we walked out with players. We had great players, and they shouldn't have been with us. Yeah. You know, but he was, if so it wasn't for Bob, we wouldn't have been where we were. Well, and I know it's not your favorite thing to talk about, and we sure don't have to, but once again, you've told me over the years that the racism, you know, oh. going on the road and places you couldn't stay in the hotels because your team was integrated and just pretty, you know, seems impossible to believe today, but it wasn't that long ago. Well, and, and what's interesting is I, I, every time we ran into a situation like that, I would bring the kids in and we'd sit down and talk, the whole team, white, black. And I would say, here's the issue. All right, we can either make a big stink out of this, or we can, you know, cause problems, or we can go find another place. If not, just go home. And they, they said, Coach, whatever you think is right for our team and our players. I said, Well, we'll try to find another place, but if not, we're going to get on the bus and drive back because we are we're representing the state of South Carolina and a university and a community. And we did not want to embarrass them. Yeah. And the kids understood that. Yeah. So that's what we would do. Well, moving on from there, uh, your first, you know, big Division One experience, uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania. Right. Ivy League school. Very cool. Uh, and uh, tell the listeners, I think this is an amazing story. The variable that <laughs> ended up getting you a job interview and led to you getting a job. This is this is crazy. And I really want to say, Scott, this is the truth. Yeah. This is not the imagination. And, and you probably need to because it sounds uh, unbelievable. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So at, at that time, I had been at Aiken for a long time, and I said either I'm going to move on or stay here the rest of my life. And it's a great community. It's now become a, a horse community, and that's where they train horses. It's a beautiful place. Uh, so... I started to apply to any, you know, any basketball, assistant basketball job, assistant AD, AD, small college, big college, whatever. I've already sent out five, 600 letters. And most of them, I didn't get anything back. Well, from the University of Pennsylvania, the most unlucky school for me to be even considered an Ivy League school, I got a letter back saying, you know, we really like your resume, and can we talk to you? So they talked to me on the phone. I did you know, a phone interview, and then they invited Gwen and I to come up to visit, and um, you know, she was all, all ready to go. You know, she was had no problems. And the school itself, you know, Ivy League school, downtown Philadelphia. So, but a beautiful campus, but still downtown Philadelphia. And our kids were just young at the time. And I said to her, "It's all up to you. If they, you know, if they offer us, we got to tell yes or no." She said, 
if it's professionally good for you, it's going to be good for the family, then we'll take it. So I had a great interview. I knew I had a great interview. You know how you just mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I had interviews that I walk away and say, there's no way in hell that I'm going to get this job. But I knew I had a great interview, and I could tell because they kept asking me questions more than they would normally ask me. So I came home, and like two days later, I get a call from this woman who was head of the search committee. And she said, we want to offer you the job. I said, wow. I said, she said, why, why wow? I said, I just never thought I would be an Ivy League person mm -hmm. or type of person. And they said, we really think you can do a great job for us. So we packed up the family, got put them in the station wagon, we drove to Camden, New Jersey. And if you've never been to Camden, New Jersey, it might be the armpit of the world. <laughs> that and Terre Haute, Indiana, I compared both of them the same. I hope there's no Indiana State people, but we had problems there. So we get up there, and we, we couldn't find an apartment right away. It was late in the year. So we ended up staying in a dormitory. A men's dormitory, because at those, that time, men stayed in one dormitory, women stayed in the other. We were the first and only adults that stayed in <laughs> campus, but it was great, and they, the kids loved the girls, and that was fun. So now, we, I'm there about two months, and there were three women on the search committee. There was the head basketball coach, the head field hockey coach, which you have to understand, field hockey at Ivy League School is bigger than God. Mm. And then... Um, the senior woman's uh, associate athletic director, who was a main fundraiser, and we're still very close. So we go to this nice restaurant, and then we're sitting around there, and I'm wondering what's going on, well, what, well, why are we doing this? And so Martha, the, the fundraiser, says to the two coaches, when's your birthday? And both of them said, March 24th. And she said, mine's March 24th. And now I'm looking at him like, no, 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 this is not true. <laughs> and I, she said to me, when's your birthday? I said, March 24th. And she, all three of them said, that is the reason why we brought you up for an interview. It had nothing to do with your background or anything. It's because all of us had the same birthday. But once you got here, you did a great job. So I said. Isn't that, I mean, that's just, that's of all the crazy <laughs> stories so you told me, it's it's in terms of probability that's yeah all three people on the search committee having the same birthday and only because you had the same birthday that's did you get the initial call that's the only reason yeah, that's wild yeah and well, they didn't tell me that so i had to really work if they told me i'd have been really nervous <laughs> well before we move on you know the next pit stop is right here in good old kansas but before we do what was it like coaching in the ivy league i mean that's well a, i didn't coach i was a senior yeah, so, excuse me being but, a you know, I was I had great venues that I was responsible. And if people understand athletics, they'll understand the places that I was responsible for. The first one was Franklin Fieldhouse, uh, Franklin Field, mm -hmm. which is about a hundred thousand, and then it was a hundred thousand. Um, it was the first uh, broadcast of an NFL football game was in Franklin Field, hmm. and that's where the pen relays are. So the history. It, for, with Franklin Field is unbelievable. Yeah. And I know, I don't mean to interrupt you, but kind of two interesting prongs. You know, the, the, obviously the history is huge because they've been around so long, but also, you know, there's just no place like it for academic no. prowess, credentials, right. that kind of thing. But, but just that football stadium just reeked with history. If you go back and look at all the track Olympians that mm -hmm. ran there, I mean, the pen relays, we have a great relay here, but I have to, very honest 
the pen relays. There's nobody in the country that is bigger than the pen relays. They would average about, yeah, probably close to 70,000 people on a given day at the pen relays. And they had a big high school. So it was good. Um, I, we hosted a, I think it was a um, Tyson fight. One of the fights we hosted on television. All right, and people came from all over the state to watch on television. And it's the first time in my life that I heard a gun go off. And I looked around and everybody is diving for the ground. Well, I had never experienced that. Right. So I'm like, what are we all doing here? <laughs> and somebody pulled my shirt and said, get down till we find out, let the police find out. So there was all kinds of experiences I had at Penn. I guess at, so. Good and bad, but all of them turned out to be good. Yeah. So, and then I had the Plestra was the other place that I was responsible for, and that's the big five. And I would say the closest thing that I've ever seen to Fog Allen would be the Plestra. And wow. Their history is the same. It's high praise. Oh, big. Well, it's people will tell you, even, you know, Bill will tell you, all the coaches will tell you, that's the next best venue that resembles Cole Fieldhouse. I mean, not Cole, um, Allen Fieldhouse. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> well, me. we're going to move maybe a little faster through your stops because I want to get in and talk yeah, about some I'm of our sorry. shared No, 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 no. I want to get in spend some time talking about our shared passions. Oh, I know what that is. <laughs> you know I love it. But the next pit stop, of course, near and dear to the heart of a lot of our listeners here in the Midwest, Wichita State. And I know you've talked about, you know, enjoying your time there and definitely the community, but pretty rough time. And for our listeners – uh, all I might do here is expose my ignorance. I might think everybody else is is as ignorant as I am and find out they're not. But most people here in the Midwest, particularly Kansas, know that Wichita State lost its football, had a terrible plane crash where most of its football program participants perished and that Wichita State lost its football program. And I, I maybe I'm the only one in Kansas that didn't know it, Lou, but it – wasn't until I talked to you, I always assumed the football program ended after the plane crash, and it wasn't until I talked to you and your experiences down at Wichita State that I realized it went on for several more years, and you were the one that ended up having to pull the plug. Right. Yeah. You know, you have a lot of pleasantries in, during your career, and there's every once in a while something that is just the most awful thing you can yeah. do. And that was that was one of them. Um, we we did everything we could. I mean, we were just out of control, spending money, and you know the president said whatever you have to do. We still couldn't get it going. And um, what I did was I developed a plan, and and I brought in I think six or seven of the most influential businessmen in the community, and I laid out the plan to them, and I said it. Tell me what you would do in your business if you were losing this kind of money. They all looked at me like, we don't even have to look at it, but we'd, drop, we'd, we'd get rid of the program. It wasn't bringing in any money. So I said, well, we're going to have to drop football. And they said, you know, we were against it, but now we understand it. Yeah. So, and that was very helpful. But there's still people to, to this day that write me letters and uh, say things to me if I'm in Wichita and stuff like that. And I, 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 I don't resent that, but, uh, you know, it's time sometimes to give it up. Yeah. You know, and, you know, they've wanted to bring it back. And, and I, you know, I told whoever asked me, not, you know, in the administration, I said, it's the wrong thing to do. 
Because if you look at what happened was we took all those resources and we began to put them back into baseball mm-hmm. and back into basketball. Yeah. And we've seen the success. A lot of success. Yeah. Yeah. So we took the money that we were losing and put it into good resources. Yeah. But it was tough. Ooh. Well, after Wichita State University of Maryland, athletic director, and I only want to touch on one thing real quick, that we told listeners we'd come back to the Whitey Bulger story. Uh, tell the listeners who your boss was, president <laughs> of the university, while you were at Maryland. Well, at Maryland, well, actually it was at Massachusetts when I was at Connecticut. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I, he I got was my, uh, the, got my Eastern States mixed yeah. up. <laughs> Yeah, well, Maryland considers himself a, su- a southern state. Oh, well, I should be careful then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But tell tell folks who you worked for there. Well, at Massachusetts, they hired Whitey's brother as the chancellor. As the chancellor. chancellor. He was also the president pro temp of the Senate for a long time. Yeah. Very highly respected. Very, I mean, unbelievable. And, uh, you know, didn't deal with his brother. And, you know, I mean, he just stayed away. Yeah. And developed his own reputation. It was very positive. Pretty surreal, though, knowing right. <laughs> that you, you basically grew up not very far from both of the Bolger brothers, one of whom becomes one of the most notorious mobsters in history, and the other one goes on to be a state senator and chancellor of UMass and, right. and your boss for right. a little while. Well, he, you know, he uh, asked me to come in. They were having a lot of problems at UMass, and he asked me if I'd come in to consult. Mm-hmm. And I asked my president of Connecticut, and he said, absolutely. So I went. I was going there quite a bit and got to meet with him quite a bit. And he was just delightful and really a nice guy. Yeah. So uh, That's awesome. it was a good relationship. Well, the next stop after that, and again, this is where probably a lot of listeners maybe pick up on the Lou Perkins career, your time as the athletic director at University of Connecticut, UConn. Uh, championships amongst other things in both men's and women's basketball, men's soccer, uh, all kinds of other accolades. And I know you and Gwen loved your time at UConn. We did. Yeah. We, we, you know, we stayed there 15 years. Uh, we were, you know, it's an interesting state and really an interesting school. When we got to stores, we didn't know what stores really was. But it's, it's a city within a city. And that's the only thing in the city is the university. So that's the only postmark would be the university would use stores. We got there. There was no McDonald's. There was no movie theater. There was nothing. And so it was, you know, for Jim Calhoun and Gina Oriamba and everybody else to recruit there. But it was a great academic school, a great history, mm-hmm. um, and great people. Yeah. And the whole state, they got behind that athletic program, and they did everything they possibly could. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, and we were very lucky. And then, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. we flipped the coin, I guess, and we decided we were going to win everything. <laughs> but my philosophy, as it was here and other places, you know, it was up to me and my staff to provide the resources to let them compete at the highest level, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And it be, you know benefited everybody, but you know I had great coaches. Jim Calhoun, you know, a legend. Gina Williamber is beyond a legend. And, and really, the reason I went to Connecticut, I was offered the job previously, and I turned it down. But Jim Calhoun and I are very close friends, and Jim and I played against each other in high school. So he called me when the job opened up the second time. He said, "You got to come. You just got to come. We need help desperately." And I said, and Maryland was a great job, but. You know, I, 
I belong to Connecticut more than I belong to yeah. Maryland, and I knew that. Well, I'm going to skip ahead again. I want to leave a good amount of time to talk about some more generic sports things and some shared passions, so won't spend maybe as much time as I'd like on your last stop, but uh, University of Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Rock Chalk. Yeah, and uh, what a great experience here, too. Orange Bowl victory, national championship in men's basketball, again, amongst other accolades. Uh, and I have to say this, I say this to a lot of our guests who are not native Kansans and either chose to come here or even better, Lou, chose to stay here. It's awesome as a lifelong Midwesterner, native Kansan, just awesome when somebody comes from not the Midwest area, gets a taste of this and decides this is not only where I'm going to come for my career, this is where I'm going to come for the rest of my life. Well, people don't realize that. First of all, my wife is Midwesterner. I met her at Iowa. She, her whole family's from Nebraska. So, you know, until we got married, she didn't live any place but Iowa. Uh, her dad at the time was uh, dean of the School of Education at Des Moines, uh, Drake. And, you know, they've been all over education, but basically in the Midwest. So she is a Midwester. But when you look at my years of experience, you know, four years at Iowa, you know, four or five years at Wichita State, you know, 15 years here. I spent a lot of time in the Midwest. You sure did. People don't realize that. And, of course, yeah. I chose that over some other places because we love the people. We love the, the schools, and we love what they all stand for. Yeah. And that means a lot to us. Absolutely. Our people are the best asset, no doubt. And we could have moved to any place. We had a home in South Carolina, uh, Key War Island, which is a beautiful place. And we found ourselves not going there too much. Part of that was because we have children in yeah. New Orleans, but we sold that place because we knew this was going to be our home. Well, before we leave the sports side of this, um, tell me a couple stories. And your life has been full of them, but just pick a couple that you want to talk about for a minute. You know, you and I often talk about the different things that impact your life in a pretty profound way and how sports can be one of those. Right. You know, it can be it can be empowering to the the kid that is either poor or academically challenged or you name it. You know, it can bring families together in certain circumstances. Um, I mean, you know, kids that don't become professional athletes Sports gets them the education that right. takes them on the next level. Just pick a couple of stories from your career that you found to just be incredibly compelling that capture the power of sports that you've had the, the opportunity to witness. Well, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to fall into the category in which you want to go to, but if it wasn't for me working at KU, I wouldn't have a chance to meet people like you mm -hmm. who have had a major impact on my life, even though a lot of people won't see it, but just watching you for over the years and the integrity you have and everything you do in your business world, you're, you know, you're a lobbyist, but as I said earlier, there's not one person that I've ever heard say anything negative. And being that profession, that's tough. <laughs> so pat yourself on the back, Scott. Well, uh, kind of I mean, say so. You, you are a special person. Well, thanks. And I admire you as much as anybody I've been around. So, thank uh, you. Yeah, well, that's incredibly kind of you to say. And, you know, it is probably a good reflection that I'm sitting here focused on the sports stories, but I bet that's true that your career, you probably have 
seen a lot of magical things happen and developed a lot of great relationships that are well, ancillary know, to the sports. You know I don't talk about this very much, only to special people. But I had, because of my athletic background and where, what I was doing, I had the opportunity to spend four summers with a guy that really turned, I saw, I learned a lot from him. He helped me become a better person. Never mind a better professional, better person. And that was Nelson Mandela. Yeah, tell this is another and, pretty uh, crazy. <laughs> story. That's a whole, you know, that that's another podcast. Uh, but I, it's it was incredible how it happened and what happened with it. And he and I became extremely close, very close. And um, but if it wasn't for the University of Connecticut and they were involved in a program with this country of South Africa, uh, and they needed somebody to write the history of the whole thing with the apartheid and the whole thing and so we had a great history department there and they he was such a cool guy i loved him because usually when you put out something for bid you get paid for it you know they pay you uh he put out the bid and we had to pay him all right and we had to pay him a cool 32 million dollars wow okay to do the project but there were a lot of benefits to the university and financial as well as other reasons. I just got involved because the president wanted me to go down. It was always in the summer. Wanted me to go down with the professors and just make sure everything was good. You know, they, they were great guys and great people. But, you know, sometimes professors are they're so focused on what they're there for, they forget about their visas, they forget about all this kind of stuff. And that's how I got to go in. Just happened to some incident came up that worked out unbelievable for me personally, and and got yeah. to develop a friendship with a guy like Nelson Mandela. Yeah, you know, and, and again, uh, not trying to brag at all, but I had the ability in my lifetime to sit and have dinner with I think seven or eight, maybe even more presidents of the United States. I mean, Gwen and I we have pictures all over the house, and that's pretty impressive. Yeah, to me it was. But being with Nelson was, he was just the class of the class. Yeah. And those four summers will be always remembered by me personally and my family as some of the best four summers I've ever spent. And, you know, in its own way, you were in your athletic director position, but in its own way, it really was sports that led you to that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great president who trusted me, and (laughs) He, he called me and he said, you know, I have a favor to ask you. I said, what's, what do you need? And he said, I'm sending you to South Africa. I said, what? He said, yeah, I just was, he, I didn't even know anything about the program. And so he explained it to me and he said, I would like to have you go be my ambassador. It's not the first time we've heard the word ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> So I was inside joke for yeah. our listeners, but yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, I became the ambassador for the university, and essentially babysit the, the full professors, yeah. but they didn't need babysitters. Yeah, so it was just great. Well, speaking of inside jokes, uh, before we burn up too much time, I'm gonna let's get into the the human side of Lou Perkins. Uh-huh. We've probably worn our listeners out with all my talk of your professional career but i think it's so interesting i think the stories are so compelling uh but let's move on to the non-professional side uh, for our listeners my friendship with lou started in the greatest of places uh at a cigar lounge right here in lawrence kansas 
um, I knew who you were, of course, because of your profile as the athletic director. You didn't know who I was, but it didn't take very long. Uh, cigars, in my opinion, cigars is one, and people will certainly disagree, and I respect that. But it's one of the great neutralizers mm-hmm. of all things. Yeah, neutralizers and, and equalizers. Equalizers, yep. that's even a better word. Yep. Because when you walk into a lounge or a cigar place, you're all the same. Yep. And you might like one cigar, I might like another cigar, but we like cigars. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I learned about cigars is you learn about the art of shearing. Mm-hmm. Okay. You all, I mean, I always want to give you one of my better cigars. You always want to give me one of my better, your better cigars. And you don't see that many different you know, things. It's so and true. And there's a personal relationship that you develop. I don't know how, I don't know why, but, you know, those, there's a group of people that I met down at the cigar shop that they will be my best friends for a long time. Yep. And they have nothing to do with any sports program that I was involved in. Yep. It is it is truly an incredibly compelling commonality when you have it with somebody. And we'd be remiss if we didn't give a short shout-out. You and I both had been cigar lovers for a long time. But, uh, you know, to whatever extent either one of us ever came to truly know our rear from our elbow about cigars, uh, it happened to both of us via the great cigar Sherpa, Trey Mac Shipley who, uh, for listeners, is the general manager of the cigar store here in town, uh, knows more about cigars than any human being you'll ever meet, and helped both you and I together uh, develop a a financially crippling appreciation for good cigars. (laughs) Well, you know, I I don't even know for for sure how old uh, Trey is. He's about 35. I'd say that's about right. In my life, that's young. Yeah. so I, when I when I started to go there, it was basically I would go to buy cigars, but I wouldn't hang out there. But after I retired, I used to, you know, hang out there, and mm-hmm. I met some very great, interesting people. But he was the guy. Yeah, I smoked the same cigar for like twenty years because I didn't know anything else mm-hmm. but that cigar, and it was affordable. And he got a hold of me, and probably in seven eight years now, I have smoked more different cigars Mm -hmm. and each one is better than the one i had before yep and he has led us to that and he's an amazing young man and he again i don't care where you i am if i picked up the phone and said trey i'm I'm in a cigar shop and and east lansing michigan i'm thinking about buying the cigar what do you think yeah he would tell you yep it's so true it is And and i'm sure you have too i've done it before been in Scottsdale, oh. Arizona, or wherever, and I'll either text him to ask, or you know, after I bought it, I'll text him and say, "Oh, this is really good. What can you tell me about this?" He's the he's the Godfather. He's the know? Godfather. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, my uh, last comment about cigars will move on, but uh, my favorite memories of time spent with you are two things, and one is cigars, and the other, the next one I want to talk about is music. Uh, uh, shared love of Motown music, uh, and really all. I love everything. Music. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, I since I've known you and you've played here and you do a great service to this community. I hope more people come out and hear you. But every year you bring people up from Mastro, mm-hmm. which is I think is outstanding. It's pretty good. One for you because they, they, they believe in you and two that they take the time away from their jobs to come up here to share yeah. their music. And they are incredible people. They, they you know, are they are incredible people and loyal. Yeah. You. Yeah, yeah. Which makes it special. But I've always gone, 
You know, I'm not a country western guy, <laughs> but I've tried, <clears throat> and I get better at it. But you, you and I start talking about Motown. Oh yeah, and you know, there's. You saw when you came in the house, what I have? I had Billy Joe when he saw the Motown got me. Yeah. I, I've learned He's got Motown flair. Yeah. Yeah. But my roommate, when I was, you know, that mm-hmm. in Iowa, was from Detroit, Michigan, Equus. And uh, I couldn't afford to go home during the holidays. And he, he was able to get a car sometimes. And we would drive to his house. And we end up going down to Motown and sitting. There was a rock then. I don't know if it's still there. We'd sit on the rock, and we would sit listening to all these groups getting ready to go downstairs mm-hmm. to the Funk Brothers. I was just going right? to bring that and up. And nobody yep. really knows about the Funk Brothers, but they were the really the big part of Motown because they played for yeah. every group. Absolutely. All right, and then finally got some loving from people. Yeah. But uh, they, but everybody had to wait outside till their turn. And you know, George grew up with those people. And uh, he would sing with them, and I would sit there and like. Yeah. Then I would find out. Well, you know, you just listened to the Supremes, uh, Marvin Gaye, uh, whoever it was. You know, they were names before, but they became big names. No doubt. Uh, quick, <laughs> quick uh, fill in for our listeners. I mean, yeah, that was a huge moment when somehow we got to the Funk Brothers, and <laughs> and I was like, you know who the Funk Brothers oh, yeah. are, and you said, you know who the Funk <laughs> Brothers are. If uh, for listeners, if you have not seen Standing in the Shadows of uh, Motown, awesome. go check out that documentary. There is no Motown without the Funk Brothers. Absolutely. Hardly anybody knows about them. Uh, one last shared passion, and then I want to ask you a couple of questions and close it up. I think I know what this passion is. Uh, animals. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, my heart. Uh, yep, yep. Both of us turn into a couple of pretty soft sissies oh, when it comes man. to, yeah. We've been very fortunate. We've we've rescued all our dogs. Yeah. And we've been so lucky and we're so passionate about our dogs and other people's dogs. And, uh, you know, like at the University of Connecticut, we met this young lady uh, who was on the board of trustees at Connecticut. Well, she happened to be, the last two years we were there, uh, ranked as the number one veterinarian doctor in the country. And she was on all Pfizer's boards and stuff like that. And she turned out to be Gwen's best friend. And they're still best friends. Um, but, you know, we learned so much about animals from her. Yeah. And then when we came here, there's a doctor in Tom Lebo who is awesome. And again, he's been great to us and our pets and you know, we'll do anything in the world for them. Yeah. It's uh when you meet somebody else that has that like total uh addicted all in love of animals, it's it's another bond, it really yep. is. Uh have you been out? I wasn't until just last week. It was the first time I've gone out to our brand new Humane Society here in Lawrence. I have not done that. It's amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. Just, both just both my heart. wife and my daughter Holly, who went to law school here. Uh, have been on that board different times mm-hmm. and they they did some fundraising for that too yeah so. one of my proudest parts of my you know background time here in lawrence kansas i'm a past president of the humane society oh that's here. awesome yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's just a there's no other organization quite like it. Uh, they do well, a great job. I want to ask you one more question on the personal side, and then I've got a couple of sort of big theoretical questions okay. I'm going to end the podcast with. Uh, we cannot 
get off of this podcast without letting you talk for at least just a minute about Gwen and your girls. Cause, <sighs> and, and this is really my doing. All we've talked about today is your professional career and some of the shared passions you and I have. But anybody that knows you knows that really, I mean, that's all very secondary to your family. And, of course, all of us at the cigar shop know Gwen is – not your better half, but like your better four-fifths, uh, just a saint of a human being. But, yeah, tell us for just a minute about well, that. Well, we met in college, mm-hmm. and uh, she was at the time living in South Dakota, and I was from Boston, so put the two of us together. But uh, we started a date, and then four years later, we got married. I graduated uh, in four years, and she took four and a half years, and we got married the next day. Uh, we've been married 51 years. And the going bet 51 years ago, it wouldn't last but a year. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God she's a tough lady. She's been through a lot yeah. uh, with me. And she stands up and she's, she's been super. But what also makes me so proud of her, but she makes me proud as an individual and my best friend and my wife is how she brought up our kids. And I'd like to say I'm part of that and I was, but not at the magnitude that she was because I was always gone. Mm-hmm. But I'm very close to my kids, very, very close. Closer now than I was way back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the podcast is a audio experience, but ironically for our listeners who can't see it, over Lou's right shoulder, the backdrop that I've been looking at the entire time, is the monitor for his home computer where it's a whole scrolling montage and every single picture is you and Gwen, you and Gwen, the girls, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I know how important it is to you, and I wanted to, to take at least a moment to mention it. So here's my last um, question for you. Through your time, you know, we've talked a lot about what you've seen, um, you know, both the changes from, you know, integrating college in South Carolina for the first time, um, you know, through meeting presidents and Nelson Mandela. And it has changed so much since you began your career. Uh, Share any thoughts you have or want to about what you think the biggest challenges facing college athletics today is. And if you want to prognosticate a little, um, any guesses you have about how college athletics will change over the next 20 years? Well, on the second part, I would probably not even try to take that question on because I don't think anybody knows yeah. what's going to happen in the next. I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen in the next five years. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's you know flipping every day. I, I talked to a lot of my friends who are still in the business, and they you know they at the end of the day they'll pick up the phone and call me, and they said, "You won't believe what happened today." You you know, and this is all national stuff. Um, well, with that in mind, um, you know we won't speculate about the future then let's maybe focus on the now what um you know we can close our podcast down with this what what are the biggest challenges you think that face athletic college athletics today well, if, i think finances have always been an issue most people don't realize this probably about 20 25 years ago almost every school didn't make a difference what kind of school was being um, subsidized by the universities and then what happened was the presence began to come under a lot of pressure because they couldn't raise enough money and get enough money. So they said, they brought all the athletic directors in for a national meeting, said, we are no longer 
support programs. So whatever you want to do, as long as it's within the rules, go out and do it. Well, we all got together. There was probably about 100 of us. We said, what are we best at? Well, all of us had some interest in fundraising and marketing. And so we were glad that they turned that over to us. Well, then they got so mad because we made it work. And they tried to get it back. We haven't, at least <laughs> I, when I was there, we haven't because what happened was, like, like in fundraising, you know, we have something to offer. You know, athletics has something to offer. The university, they have a lot of things to offer, but not the same. Mm-hmm. And so people were giving us money that weren't giving it to the academic program. And we would always try to tell the donor, please look at our academic program, because without them, we're nothing. So I think finances has become a major, major role. And, and to give you an example, Scott, and I might be off because I'm getting old, but when I first came here, our budget was like about $26 million, and I could be up or down a little bit. When I left, we were probably in a $160 million. Oh, my gosh. And how many years were you here? Uh, almost 15. Yeah, but still, that's like six <sighs> six times. Oh, but, it was unbelievable. Yeah. But we can never catch Oklahoma and Texas. So you know, we're asking our coaches to compete with them, but we couldn't compete with them at, at that, you know, on that level. Texas, I think, when I got here, was over $100 million. Yeah. And I so, shudder to think what they're at now. Oh, well, yeah. they've kind of had some problems, so yeah. maybe not as much. But, you know, you had Nebraska in the league, and, you know, those people, they just gave money like it was nothing. Yeah. So we had to overcome a lot of that here. And now I think a lot of schools are, are having that same problem. And I think at, at some time, and that's why you're seeing all the posturing about the six conferences. Mm-hmm. Because television money is so big, it was so big when I first got into business, and then it dried up. Yeah. And at some time, it's going to dry up. Yeah. And then where, where do you go? What do you do? So finance is going to be an issue for the for every college athletic program. I don't care if it's Alabama or Texas, it's going to be a problem eventually. And so, what I always would try to in the Big Twelve, we started to do this, is start to plan for the worst day that we could have and we started to do some things to put some money away for all the schools you know and and they've done a good job with that and i think being in a big conference like the big 12 it's everything and if you're not in one of those conferences you're going to be left out yeah well on that uh much as i could go on and on we're uh we're going to wrap up today but lou what a what a good time Really appreciate you making time to join us on the podcast. It's been a blast. Well, thank you. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you allowing me to be on and that you've allowed me to be part of your family. And our friendship, it means a lot to me. Well, I couldn't couldn't agree more, my friend. And on that note, uh, mm. I'm going to hit stop and we can go smoke a cigar. I like that. <laughs> well, Lou, thanks so much. Uh, BHL listeners, this is my friend and former KU Athletic Director Lou Perkins on the BHL podcast. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. We'll join you all again next time on the BHL podcast series. Mm.